you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to or during any question. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. Do you understand your rights? This episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast may contain descriptions of acts of violence or that of a sexual nature. It should be for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I do not get the facts of these cases off of the Internet or for some television show. The facts I'm retelling you were presented to me by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims. My descriptions of the crime scenes, what I saw with my own two eyes. If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And today, I'm going to tell you a, a tragic, senseless murder story and I'm going to name it still alive question mark question mark question mark um I'm gonna take you to Assumption Parish y'all now Assumption Parish is in South Louisiana and I think it was like the eighth parish or the pretty much like the eighth settlement in the history of the state of Louisiana, uh, the area to be settled. And it was mostly by the Cajun, uh, Cajun French. The Canadians that were kicked out of Canada and they landed in South Louisiana, this is one of the major places that they landed. And it has numerous waterways and really fertile ground. It's almost, well, it is all flat. And now... Uh, even to this day, it's mostly agriculture with sugarcane fields and stuff like that. So they kicked them out of Canada and they landed there. They made their living, you know, from farming and off the waterways, et cetera. Assumption Parish is very small, y'all. I think the 2020 census has it at like 21,000 people in the, in the whole parish. Um, believe it or not, it's one of the last places in Louisiana where Cajun. French is still mainly spoken and just really a bunch of good people. The I have a lot of history there over the years working cases and um sheriff the, the sheriff now, Leland Falcon, is a dear friend of mine and I actually called him yesterday and and asked him about this case and, and uh and I'll talk about that later on. But the actually 
in years past, when, when y'all have heard me talk about my partner at the state police, Murray Landry, who was a retired trooper who came back as a criminal investigator, his daddy had been sheriff down there forever, for a long, long, long time. But really small communities, Napoleonville, Pierre Pard, um, some names that I could pronounce that y'all wouldn't even understand. But it's just small. Everybody knows everybody. Really, really, really great people. I mean, I, I've never been down there and had a bad experience, right? Everybody treats you with respect and just the southern Louisiana lifestyle. And, you know, just if you want to raise a family in a great place, uh, Assumption Parish would be the place to do it. But this story, still alive, man, it's just pisses me off so bad and we'll get into that in a little bit but let me tell you what happened so let's go back to june the 4th of 1998 um there's a guy named james dunn who was a piece of shit to begin with he had you know prior stuff uh, uh been to prison before and just He's a loser, but he's not from Assumption, y'all. Actually, I think he was from he was from Garyville. Um, and on June fourth, nineteen ninety eight, he went to his girlfriend's house. Her name was Leola Stewart, and he wanted to borrow a car, right? And it was a rental car, and so she gave it to him. And then he goes and he picks up his two homies, Kendall Bro and Anthony Scott, in Garyville, Louisiana. And what do these geniuses do? Well, mm, you know, got nothing much else to do today. So let's ride on over to Napoleonville. Now, Napoleonville, y'all, it's, it is small. And it's a, really the one major highway going through it is Louisiana Highway 1. Uh, so they go to Napoleonville, and they drive past the bank. And it's no longer there. The building is still there. But the bank was named the Everville Bank, and that's because um, that's the bank that was started out at Everville Parish however long ago. But they drive past the bank, and they go to a convenience store, and they go inside, and what do they do? Walk around a little bit, and all three of them bought soft drinks, or what we call commonly in the South called Cokes, right? Um then they get back in the car, and I believe it was a, a green Pontiac, the rental car uh, that they got from Leola Stewart. And they go back to the bank. And it's right before noon. It's around 11.40 a.m. in the morning. Now, you would think most banks are busy uh, right around noon. That's people on their lunch breaks that want to get their stuff done and all that. Um, you know, do their banking, if you will. Well, they pull up, and there's nobody there. No no customers, all right? Now, this bank it has the front door, and then it has a drive-through window, right? It's a small bank. So uh, Dunn parks the car in a handicapped parking space. Well, you all know how I feel about that, right? But anyway, parks, that's the lease of his fences. He parks the car in a handicapped parking space, and he and uh, Scott entered the bank, and 
there are only two employees, y'all. And this is very, very important, and I'm going to give face to these victims, and that's why I called Sheriff Leland Falcon yesterday. Uh, and he and I, again, worked together at State Police Headquarters and before he, he retired and, and became sheriff down there. And there were two employees in the bank. They, they were uh, Lisa uh, Dupuy, who was only 22 years old, y'all, at the time. And she was the teller that was working behind the counter. And there was a 31-year-old lady named Miss Jacqueline Blanchard. And she was seated at a desk near the front door. Like, you walk in the small bank and, you know, may need to open a counter or whatever. She's sitting there at that desk. So... Now, this is all documented on surveillance camera, y'all. The bank's surveillance camera shows uh, Dunn and Scott entering the bank at, at approximately 11.40 a.m. And the they go to the counter, and Miss Dupuy, who's, again, I told you she's 22 years old, and oh, I'm sorry, let me digress for a second. Leland Falcon, the sheriff, knows like everybody does down there, but he knew these families forever. He still knows them to this day, and he said they are the best people, uh, um, you know, the, survive, the surviving family members, if you will, best people, and he he knew of these people, that, of, of Miss Dupuy and Miss Blanchard at that time. He said just really, really good people, hardworking people, right? So... They go to the counter and they say, "Hey, we need to take out a money order." So she said, "For how much?" And put the money over the counter and they start to fill it out, etc. The now while she's filling out the bank uh, the the money order, Dunn leaves the bank and walks back to the car where Bro was still sitting in the inside the car, and Dunn handed Bro a pager. And he tells him, hey, hey, bro, in 30 seconds, I want you to come in the bank. All right. Then Dunn turns around. He walks back inside the bank. And what does he do? He goes back up to the counter and he pulls out a nine millimeter pistol and he aimed it right at Miss Dupuy. All right. Now, look, uh, like I told you, there were no other eyewitnesses in the bank at the time. But the bank surveillance camera captured, at least they capture what started to happen, uh, which was a bank robbery. All right. Um, as soon as Dunn reentered the bank, he, he pulled out that nine millimeter handgun and aimed it at Miss Dupuy. And at the same time, Scott, who was still inside the bank, pulled out a large revolver and he aimed it at Miss Blanchard, who was sitting at the desk. Now, Scott told Miss Blanchard, get up, stand up. Dunn, at the same time, jumps over the, the customer counter. And back then, y'all, they didn't have all the plexiglass and stuff like they do now, and that's probably one of the reasons that they do. But he jumps over the counter, and he grabs Miss Dupuy from behind. You know, in his arm, right? I'm sure. And Scott forced Miss Blanchard from her desk and made her walk back to the teller area where – Dunn was holding Miss Dupuy at gunpoint. And what do they do? They do what bank robbers do. They they start opening up all the cash drawers and taking money out while still holding the pistols on the women. Now, can you imagine 
how terrified these two ladies were. It, I mean, you know, I guess you work in a bank or a jewelry store, or even a convenience store, or anywhere that 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 has money. You, you always expect that you might one day be robbed. Well, I know these ladies didn't think this was going to happen when they went to work that day, and now they both got pistols pointed at them, and these bad guys are taking all the cash money out of the drawer. Well, at some point, I don't know how, and and it's not clear, but at some point, um, one of the two ladies pressed a silent alarm. And I used to say, go around and, and, and teach people, uh, one of them was the national jury chain, on how to you know to try to cut down robbers and stuff like that. And I always warned them about, pressing that silent alarm because if I was going to rob the bank that I would have somebody in the vehicle monitoring police band radio and you know if I go inside I'd have communication with them go inside and somebody press the silent alarm and they radio to me hey somebody press the silent alarm then guess what I'm you know dead people can't leave or dead people can't get on the stand and testify well they pressed the silent alarm but these idiots didn't have any way to monitor. They didn't know the alarm had been pressed. Uh, so they emptied the cash drawers, and Scott and Dunn then uh, at gunpoint screaming, hollering at them, and they forced the women into a side office. Now, the side office was the bank manager's office, and he just happened to not be in the building at that time. I guess lucky for him, right? <sighs> and they they forced him in the side office, and there were no video cameras in the office, y'all. But the lobby camera was able to it, it was pointing in such a direction that you could see out of the peripheral view of the camera, you could see some of what was going on in the office. Now, remember, I told you a bro was sitting outside in that car. And they told him to come in in 30 seconds. Well, this idiot comes in, and he's carrying a Prestone antifreeze container. Now, we all know what those are, the big yellow container with antifreeze that you fill up your car with, with right? Well, this antifreeze container had gasoline in it. And Bro begins to spread it all over the the lobby of the bank, just slinging it out, gas, boom, slinging it out, right? Obviously, his intention was to burn it down. Now, meanwhile, I told you the camera catched a little bit of the side view, and it showed Miss Blanchard, um, and she appeared to be praying, y'all, okay? And Miss Dupuy stood right behind her. Now, just think about this, that the – a lot of the bank robbers and most bank robbers, people don't get killed, but it's still a traumatizing event. And, you know, these two idiots are holding guns on you. But if you didn't think you were going to get killed, and then this third idiot bro comes in with the antifreeze container and he starts throwing gas, well, you know it's gas. And I'm I'm sure they knew what was about to happen, Okay. Uh, hearts go out to these victims' families and and you know into this whole community that had to live with this. But the like I told you, Miss Blanchard 
appeared to be praying and Miss Dupuy was behind her. But at that point, the video equipment was ripped from the wall. All right. We stopped the recording. Now, back then, they didn't have the cloud, y'all, and all that. So they, if you take the cameras out and you rip the the hard drive or whatever it's recording to, uh, um, the recording equipment out, that's it. And so that's where the surveillance stops. But at the same time, this is going on. Uh, a bank custom, customer, um, Arlene Seminole, arrived at the at the drive up window I told y'all about and at the same time she she noticed or they they Seminole noticed that the blinds were drawn but the slats were open right so they pulled the blinds down but these idiots didn't even think to close the blinds all the way so, so you could still see in and she peered through the slats in the windows and she's looking in she's like what is this kind of unusual, right? I came to do my banking and first in line, and, but the blinds are down, but I can look in and what does she see? She sees two black males running out of that side office that I told you about, right? And Ms. Simino testified that just as she started to ring the teller call button, um, and just after the two black males ran out the front door of the bank, she heard, boom, and then moments later, boom, boom. So three gunshots, right? She then saw a black male wearing a, a white cap run out of that office where you can only imagine what happened, right? And they ran out of the office, but when he's running out, he looks he looks over his shoulder and he sees Miss Semino through the slats in the window, right? And and she sees him, right? So they run out and they get in the car, and Miss Semino drove around to that side of the bank, and she saw the car. It was a green Pontiac Sunfire, and now it's hauling ass out the parking lot. And then she went to follow the car, uh, but she saw the cops cops coming, and so she turned around and reported what she had seen and tell, tell cops what was going on. And Miss Simino was certain that Dunn, if, later on, if she was able to pick him out of the photo line, et cetera, but she was certain of what she had seen in, in the facial features and everything, and, and later on she was able to pick, positively identify Dunn as the one who was wearing the white hat and had ran out of the office last after she heard the three gunshots. Okay, uh, after the, the other two had left the bank. Now, at the same time, Deputy Michael Brown was patrolling, and he gets a call sixty two A at Everville Bank. Well, y'all sixty sixty two A is is a code uh, for an alarm at a residence or a business or whatever. And I'm going to tell you right now, 99.9% of the alarms that come in are accidental. Whether it's kids arriving home from school and they set off the alarm or somebody accidentally hit the business alarm, et cetera. And so, yeah, look, we had so many of these calls in my day that they actually started to charge people for having to respond. Uh, City Police Department started charging people 
for having to respond to all these false alarms set off by a cat or a motion detector inside the house or what have you. But so he's just, he's like, they're like 62A at, at the Iberville Bank. He's like, Temple or Ben Rowell. And what he's driving up to the bank, he sees uh, that same green Pontiac leaving the parking lot. But uh, again, he was suspecting a false alarm. And so he pulls up and he, he walks to the front door and he opened it. Well, boom. As soon as he opens, he gets just like, you know, strong, strong smell of gasoline. And he didn't see anyone in the bank, right? It's like, mm, you know, as a cop, you, you have to process things in milliseconds, people. And, and you're putting together, you're not believing anything really bad happened or whatever, but you open the door, you get hit with the smell of gasoline, you don't see anyone, maybe it's starting the process. But he says, he says, Sheriff's Office, Hey, sheriff's office, and he got no response, y'all. But then he heard a gurgling sound coming from that side office. He's walking towards the, that office, and he sees Miss Jacqueline, Jacqueline Gilliatt Blanchard, and she was laying face down in a pool of blood, gasping for breath, all right? At the same time, he sees Miss Lisa Dupuy's legs, and he looked behind the teller counter and saw her lying in a pool of blood as well. All right, now he's in no shit mode. Right, he runs back outside and called for you know called for backup. And, hey, I got. Two, two bodies down, send an ambulance, send me uh, everybody that you can. Um, you know, this is a horrible scene. So he then runs back into the bank, and he's going to try to, you know, render assistance if he could. And he noticed that Miss Blanchard was still attempting to breathe. And remember, she was face down, y'all, uh, um, in – just a horrible, horrible scene. Um, and he goes from Miss Blanchard to Miss Dupuy, and he checked her for a pulse, and there wasn't any. She was dead. Okay. Um, the ambulance arrives. They come in, and they get Miss Blanchard, and they move her into the lobby. Uh, and, you know, they, they start working on her, and, and they, they did their best, y'all. They put her on the stretcher and they get her in the ambulance and they go into the hospital. But unfortunately she died on the way to the hospital. Right. And then when they investigated it, the detectives investigated it. They found that both Miss Blanchard and Miss Dupuy had been shot multiple times in the head and their upper bodies. Um, I'm going to take a second again and say my condolences to the family. And, you know, evil truly does live, unfortunately. And and, and it's heartbreaking um, and prayers for y'all. So the, the cops were working the scene, and they found bullets in empty cases that would later match the 
uh, Dunn's nine millimeter pistol that he used. And they found them around and under the victim's bodies. Now, that tells me as an investigator that that you know they shot them while they were still standing, and um, otherwise there, there was no way for the casings et cetera to get underneath the bodies. So they would have had to fall on top of them. Remember, they were shot numerous times in, in the head and body. Also, the the police found gasoline on Miss Blanchard's desk and the teller counter and areas inside that office where the bodies were, y'all. Uh, um, but missing from the bank were the video surveillance equipment, and when it was totaled up, it was found that $16,615 in cash were missing. All right. Now, it's just stupid that you're going to execute Two wonderful people for sixteen thousand dollars. It's in sixteen sixteen thousand six hundred fifteen dollars in cash. All right, let's go back to when it was going down real time. So when Miss Simino um, saw the deputy pulling back in, and she turned around instead of chasing the car, and she came up to him and said, "Hey, look, you know, it's a green Pontiac Sunfire and." There's three black males, and one of them were, was wearing a white hat, and I heard gunshots and, and everything. So she just gives, gives them all that information. Well, immediately, the deputies uh, rated, rated it out to everyone. Hey, we had a 64G, an armed robbery at the Iberville Parish Bank. We've got two two bodies down, and this is the car we're looking for, Bolo, or be on the lookout for uh, armed and dangerous, right? So they set up roadblocks. Now there again, there's that one major highway, Highway One, that runs through the um, Assumption and into Ascension Parish, which is the next one up. And it, you know, there's only so many ways you can go. It's not like you're in the city, you're on the interstate or whatever. So they knew. The deputies knew from both parishes. Now, look, when something like this happens down south like that, that ever all the surrounding communities and parishes are going to get notified, and they work together. And you know, murders just don't happen down there, y'all. I mean, it, it, executions. I shouldn't even call it murders. I should call it an execution. And, and during the armed robbery, so they set up roadblocks. Okay, and all throughout the parish. Um, so in at a roadblock in Ascension Parish, the Green Pontiac Sunfire pulls up to the roadblock, and the deputy asks for information. He says, "Hey, can we see your driver's license, registration?" Now they didn't draw down on whatever. They, they, they even I've been on a lot of these roadblocks, y'all. When, when you're doing it, you you're not really thinking that you're actually going to be the one who these people approached right or that you don't think that your roadblock is going to be the one uh that the bad guys are actually going to come to but they did and, and the deputy asked for driver's license etc and guess what happened they run like a little bitches they stomp the gas and they drive right through the roadblock at a high rate of speed 
Um, but the problem was, and, it, and not very many turns on these roads, y'all. And I told you about agriculture and the waterways and everything else. Well, on agriculture, there, there's train tracks that run through there, and there's a lot of uh, uh, plants down there on the river and stuff like that. And they, they, I mean, it's, it's a lot of train traffic. They haul stuff in and out every day, right? So they're hauling ass, and they come around a turn, and Dunn was driving the vehicle. Guess what he does? There's a railroad tracks, and this idiot doesn't look, and he runs directly into a train, which was which was okay. So the train track was running perpendicular to the highway, right? He comes around the turn and and runs right into the train, and the the train drug him down the track, however far, and done. I mean, it's a, you know, you're not going to win a, a, a crash with a train at any point, right? But Dunn and Scott were still uninjured, and they jump from the car and they haul ass. Well, there's nothing out there, y'all. The sugarcane fields, and they ran, and the cops were right on their tails, and they get out and they foot chase the the, the run is on right, and meanwhile, Kendall Bro. Who, who had been sitting in the back seat of the car, the third bad guy, he got out and he attempted to run, but the deputies and the police on the scene drew down on him and, and got him down and took him into custody. And Dunn and Scott, the, uh, I told you they took off on the sugarcane fields. And then look, sugarcane, sugarcane is tall, y'all. If you're not from South Louisiana, it's, it's you know, it's tall and it's thick. Uh, it's not like it's easy running, et cetera. But they ran and they ran and they ran. Well, guess what? The cops didn't give up. And they ended up uh, catching them about two miles away from where Dunn ran, Dunn's dumbass ran the car into the train. Uh, uh, so they ran for two miles. Adrenaline runs out. Cops catch up to them and they take them into custody. Now, where they find them, they not only got they found them, they found all of the money, the sixteen thousand plus dollars in cash, and the video equipment from the bank, the surveillance equipment that they stole. Right? Because hey, we're going to get away with it. They don't have any cameras, and then we're going to be good, right? But guess what else? They also found the revolver and the nine millimeter pistol. Mm. Dumb criminals, I would think so. I mean, you could have thrown that anywhere along your pursuit, but I guess they thought they were going to get away. They run, y'all, for, for about two miles, uh, and, uh, and then they try to hide, and the cops catch up to them, um, take them into custody, all right? So while working the case, after taking them into custody, both of the pistols were found, the nine millimeter and the revolver were found, and also uh, some of the items were found in the car, and which included like the video surveillance equipment from the bank, etc. So that's it. They're they're under arrest, and now in Louisiana, it's first degree murder. Why is it first degree murder? For first degree murder, you have to have aggravating circumstances. The difference between second-degree murder 
in first degree murder. Second degree murder, if I plan out a murder and I kill one person, it's not during the commission of a robbery or whatever, you know, you're going to get life in prison. First degree murder has to have aggravating circumstances. Now, in this case, they were charged with first degree murder because it has actually, I think, three three different elements that made it a first degree murder case. One, the murders occurred during the uh, perpetration of a, a robbery, the robbery of the bank. Two, they killed more than one person in the, the, the you know the violence of the crime, right? So they get them, uh, you know that, and they go to trial. Now the trial, if I'm not mistaken was moved way across the state to, to Calcasieu Parish because of the publicity it had received. And, of course, you know, the the bad guys didn't want to be tried in Assumption Parish where everybody knew everybody and, and they were going to get justice, Assumption Parish style, and which I wouldn't have blamed them, right? But they, they go to trial in uh, – they're, they're found guilty. Sentence to the death penalty. All right. Now, the problem with that is, as I tell y'all in every one of the stories, is these stories is you have the guilt phase and the penalty phase, and you go on trial, and you you know you got the eyewitness who saw him running out of the bank after hearing the gunshots. You have the evidence found on them. You have. Just everything, right? The the gasoline, you got the video, you can see it's these three idiots. There's no getting out of it, all right? And so, yeah, it doesn't take them long. They find them guilty. But then you go into the, the, the penalty phase, which is that when the same jury now gets to hear all these mitigating circumstances plus past criminal histories plus – what happens in every one of these stories I tell you all about, they try to say that they're not guilty either by reason of insanity or, and y'all, I, I, I didn't, these are not my words. It's a, it's a medical definition, mental, right? And you heard, just heard the beep, and I don't like to beep myself, but people get offended when, when you say this legal medical term, mental. So this what this main the main thing they're trying to say. They're trying to say that, hey, especially on Dunn, he's he's like, mm, well, you know, yeah, my client did it, but he is of such low intelligence that he can't be executed. Yeah. And so the state before that before this happened, the state, the state had him tested by numerous people, numerous doctors, and you know, saying, Hey, look, his IQ's too low. He can't make any kind of decisions like this. He's not smart enough to be executed, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, ultimately they come back and they say, you're you're full of fucking shit. You're definitely smart enough. Your history, you lie about your school stuff. And and nobody said you were dumb. You're you're smart enough to bring gasoline to the bank to try to do it and plan the robbery and everything else. So they, they denied that. Um, but one of the, the the appeals that they did or Dunn did said that the um, the defense lawyers complained that the state sucker punched the defense 
by allowing it to inform jurors during its open remarks that it would show Bro was the mastermind behind the bank robbery and then made its motion in limine to cut the heart out of the defense. Um, the loss to the defense during the guilt stage was minimal. Y'all it didn't really make a difference. During the trial, jurors viewed the bank surveillance tape and could see for themselves that Dunn pulled out his nine millimeter pistol and vaulted over the counter to confront Miss Dupuy. Jurors also had to judge for themselves the credibility of Miss Simino's testimony. Remember, she's a lady who pulled it up and saw him through the blinds. And, um, that the other two perpetrators had just reached the outside of the bank when the shots rang out from inside the office. Well, remember, Ms. Simone said, hey, he was wearing a white cap. He looked at me. You know, he was the last one to run out after I heard the gunshots. Um, yeah, and ultimately, the the jury members believe Ms. Simone's identification of Dunn as the one that was wearing the white cap, uh, and then he was a shooter. And the only other thing, y'all, basically the defense said was, hey, you know what, Dunn wasn't the mastermind. Well, they that he was a mere follower and not the leader in the bank robbery. Again, I told you, Dunn's already found guilty. I'm, I'm talking about Dunn's trial now. And they had a lady named Miss uh, Mazik um, during the – the penalty phase is where they try to use the mental defense. And that's their word, y'all, not mine. Even bad people have people that love them, right? And they don't want to see them die. Well, you know what? This lady, Miss Mazik, appeared as a defense witness during the penalty phase and begged for Dunn's life. She said, he's compassionate and caring and a loving man. Um, but y'all, that completely went against everything that the jury saw on him on surveillance and going in there, pulling out the pistol, and ultimately Miss Simino saying that she heard the shots and he looked at her as he ran out of the bank. Right, so the you know that they, they assigned him what I think is totally appropriate, which is the death penalty. They come back during the penalty phase and give James Dunn the death penalty. Now let's talk about that for a second. This is what pisses me off. This is in 1998. Now we're in 2024, and this was Sheriff Leland, Leland Falcon, and I talked about yesterday, and he said, Woody, I really hope you will you will." talk about why they're still alive. And and look, you know, whether you believe in the death penalty, you don't believe in the death penalty, I want you to think if if Miss Dupley or, or Miss Blanchard were, if it was your mama or your sister or your daughter working in the bank, good, hard working people from a great community, um, you know, just went to work to help support their families and, and make a living, and they didn't deserve to be executed, y'all. Can you imagine the terror in, in their last seconds? And that's what I think the family, what Leland Sheriff Falcon was talking about, is that 
yeah, and we did talk about this. He said every time these appeals come up, every time this has to be reheard, these families, um, these victims' family members, it's like ripping off a Band-Aid for them, right? Why, after 98 to 2008 to 18, 22, 26 years, is James Dunn, who, according to Ms. Seminole, uh, was the only one in the bank when the gunshots were going off. Why, after 26 years, is this asshole still breathing? You know? And again, the, every day that he's alive, the family members have to suffer. The, the surviving family members have to suffer. The, the good people of Assumption Parish have to suffer. Every time it comes back up, the appeals process or whatever it may be or getting put on the clemency list from the governor. Uh, and, hey, 26 years appeals process not over with? What the fuck? You know? The, and something needs to change, man. The 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 letter of the law is the letter of the law. And in 26 years, we've been paying for these idiots to be housed at Bloody Angola, and we've been fighting the appeals process. I'm talking about our tax dollars, fighting the appeals process. But the main thing is the victims' families, the good people, right? I like I tell you, there's evil in the world. Well, you know what? Flip that coin over. There are great, great people. Not only the victims, but their family members and their friends and the tight knit community, and even you know, Sheriff Falcon wasn't um, down there at the time. He was at state police, and 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 you know the the good people suffer for our imperfect legal system, and because Mister Dunn decided. Mm, I'm going to go rob a bank today. But not only did he decide he was going to rob the bank, he knew he was going to kill him. That's why they were on firearms, but also that's why they came in and tried to burn the bank down. Well, guess what the idiots didn't have? He had matches, but he didn't have anything to strike them on. And they were the safety matches. He thought he had matches where he can go in and just strike them. Like the old time of matches with the phosphorus tips, you could strike them anywhere. The only reason that bank didn't burn and those victims didn't suffer anymore or suffer any more indignity and the crime scene one wasn't more messed up is because these idiots brought the wrong matches. You know? I don't know. I want. I wanted to tell the story all of it, um, and it's a shout out to the people of Assumption Parish and all the small communities in, in, in South Louisiana and um, that are victims of these crimes. And more importantly, that I want to remind you: these people are still alive. They're still alive. 
You know who's not alive? Miss Dupuy. And Miss Jacqueline Blanchard. That's messed up. So, stay tuned. Like I told you, there's a new sheriff in town, meaning not literally sheriff, but the new governor who believes in forcing the letter of law and death penalty and everything else. But um, we'll see what happens to the, to these idiots. All right. And, again, I mean – Sheriff Falcon really put it on me yesterday that hey you know, he was even talking about one of the family the victim's family members had just died I think it was the grandfather lived to be like ninety one years old and and he's like hey you know he had a good life except for this right uh, that the human face on the on these victims is what's important and may they rest in peace. The other important thing is you need to be reminded that these animals are still alive. I'm going to conclude this episode, y'all. The, uh, I want to thank Leah Marie and Miss Petrie, Miss Alexandra, for bringing this one up to me. I, yeah, I remembered it. I really did. I remembered it. I was in law enforcement. Um, you know, it's a, Tragic, tragic case. Um, but anyway, I'm going to conclude it. And y'all, be sure to go like and subscribe uh, The Real Life Real Crime. If you're not getting the episodes that are dropping on Saturdays now, the podcast industry, the powers that be, changed um, something within how they do the ranking system. And like, if if you hadn't listened in X amount of time and you're a subscriber, they automatically unsubscribe you. So if you're not getting it and you're hearing or you got a backlog episodes or you're thinking, mm, where the F is real life, real crime? Well, we're still here. And, and so go back and subscribe. Uh, don't forget about the real life, real crime community app. I go there before I go anywhere else and, and answer everything. Uh, I answer everybody individually. And it has everything in there from a merch store to forums to games and, you know, updates and stories and the tip lines and everything else. Now, we're going to be doing some follow-up stories on uh, a couple of our cold cases that I talked about. In the, but that'll be sometime next month, and I'll explain what's going on with that later. Uh, but don't, hey, Miss Barbara Blunt's case, call the tip line, y'all. Somebody out there knows something, and your tip is not too small. It may be the one piece of evidence that's needed to push this case over the top. It's not a cold case, y'all. It's just not, and I can't tell you any more than that. But we need some more evidence, so call it in. Um, Patreon convicts, uh, Apple subscribers, you got another bonus episode last week, the Alabama Five. And I'm going to be putting up another one for you here shortly. We appreciate your support, love, and appreciate each and every one of y'all. In Lopa, Louisiana, Oregon Procurement Agency. Y'all know it's my jam. Uh, um, become an organ donor, people. They 
people are dying every day waiting on organs. The LOPA is a nonprofit, and we try to do use this platform to do good. With, and if you've been listening for any amount of time, you know LOPA is the main focus of my trying to do good and bring awareness. Um, become an organ donor. Be a hero, okay? And you don't have to be a lifer from Louisiana to join the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. You could be a lifer from Belfast. Go to lopa.org. Take two minutes, fill out the questionnaire, sign up, become a hero. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder Bayou. Peace. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney prior to or during any question. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. Do you understand your rights?